This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9 is where we are going to be today. If you brought your own Bibles, then great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 9, it is on page 863. 863. We're continuing this morning with our uh, exposition uh, through the uh, studying through the book of Acts. And for those of you who are uh, guests here with us this morning, uh, the typical diet of preaching here at FBC Diana is expositional or expository. People use those, those words sort of interchangeably, where we, we aim for the primary point of the passage to be the primary point of the sermon. So we let the Bible d- uh, direct where we're going and, and what we will study. Expository or expositional preaching doesn't demand that you go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. You can do expository or expositional preaching on any spot in the Bible you want to. uh, But it does seem to be very helpful for us to kind of walk through uh, any given book of the Bible a little bit at a time. So that we'll increasingly understand the context in which we find ourselves when we do jump into any particular passage. So we're doing that this morning. If you if you haven't been with us up to this point in Acts chapter nine. There's some stuff that would be really helpful for you to go back and maybe read through to understand a bit of the context. But still, this passage is one that can stand on its own. And so I trust that we'll all be able to gain quite a bit from the passage and from the message this morning. I'd like to begin, though, by asking you a bit of a question, which, again, if you've if you've been here along the way, then this question will be maybe a bit more sensible than than if not. But I'd like to ask you who you think the main evangelist or the main missionary is of the early church. Think about that for just a second. The very earliest Christians, who's the main evangelist, the main missionary? Well, we might say that it was the apostle Peter. In Jerusalem, he was certainly the main evangelist, the primary evangelist. He's the one they're preaching at Pentecost. He's the preacher that Luke focuses on until uh, Stephen's sermon, which is a sermon really of judgment against those who are opposing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's after Stephen's, Stephen's sermon that the, the church, the Christians there in Jerusalem, are, are persecuted more harshly than they had been before and are then scattered about uh, all Judea and Samaria. When we move out from Jerusalem, we get to Samaria, and Philip is the focus. Uh, Philip is one of those uh, Christians who went out sharing the good news of the gospel Uh, He arrives in Samaria and he's the one who gained the attention of of Samaritan crowds who responded positively to the gospel. And it's also Philip who evangelized and baptized and sent out the first Ethiopian convert. So seemingly a precursor to this traveling out to the ends of the earth of the gospel. In Acts chapter 9, we're about to meet another evangelist or missionary, this one named Saul, or as the Bible later refers to him as Paul. And for nearly the rest of the book of Acts, Luke will focus on Saul's or Paul's missionary efforts and his experiences. Now, one might argue that Saul or or Paul was indeed the main evangelist of the early church. He is the focus of missionary efforts throughout nearly the entire rest of the book of Acts. 
And he certainly has some incredible, incredible missionary exploits. But I think there's a more obvious person that we might be overlooking if we say that Saul or, or Paul was the main missionary. And this is our opportunity to use that, that best Sunday school answer that we always can give. And usually you're right. Jesus, right? Yeah, that's the answer. Who's the main missionary, the main evangelist in the early church? Well, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus is the main character of the gospel story all along. He's the initiator, the enabler of the spread of that good news. Jesus is the one who sent his spirit to empower witnesses in the world. And he's the one who commissions his followers to be those very witnesses. It's by Jesus's spirit, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus progressively works out his logistical plan to evangelize the world, which he articulated in this blueprint he gives in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says to his disciples, to his followers, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It seems to me that this passage we're in this morning highlights, along with the entirety of the, the uh, playing out of the book of Acts, highlights the reality that Jesus is the main missionary. Jesus is the one who's primarily about the task of evangelizing the world. And I pray that the Lord would help us to see the wonder of his grace. And also that we would find both courage and hope in the fact that Christ himself is the builder of his church in the world. As I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. And one of the ways that we try to show respect for God's word is we stand while we read the primary passage. Would you mind standing with me as I read from Acts chapter 9? I'll begin in verse 1. And I'll end in verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, but although his and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name 
before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name, uh, upon this name? And he and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the, in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. There is much more in this lengthy passage than we'll be able to dive into today, as is often the case. Uh, what I'd like to draw out from this passage, what I believe is the main point of this passage, is that Jesus Christ builds his church despite all opposition by converting impossible sinners through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ builds his church despite all opposition by converting impossible sinners through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the spirit. For those who'd like to take notes, there are five points today, some a little lengthier than others. But these five points are first, an insolent opponent. Second, a gracious sovereign. Third, a conversion with a commission. Fourth, suffering but welcomed. And then fifth and finally, despite opposition, Christ builds his church. That'll be a common repeated theme throughout today's message. But let's begin by looking at this insolent opponent. In this passage uh, and prior to it, Saul stands out from among other converts in Acts chapter uh, 8, 9, and 10. As we've looked at recently in Acts chapter 8, there was the conversion of the Ethiopian official. As we'll soon consider, there's the conversion of Cornelius, who is sort of the quintessential Gentile uh, in Acts chapter 10. But here in Acts chapter 9, Paul stands out among these other two that are, are sort of a consecutive 
uh, recitation that Luke is giving us of these converts. With the case of the Ethiopian official and uh, Cornelius and other Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, these are each one's uh, God-fearers. They are searching the scriptures to live according to the God of the Bible as best as they're able and trying to understand what it is that God has done in and through this this uh, one who has come, the Messiah. Saul, on the other hand, it seems is presented by Luke as the very embodiment of self-righteous, arrogant rebellion. And he seems to be uh, uh, exhibiting these things as sort of what is the, the mark of most of Israel's leaders and many of its citizens, both prior to the early church and during the days of the early church. One commentator uh, looking at Acts chapter 9, he said this about the way Luke uh, presents Paul or Saul to us in this passage. And he says, through various means, Luke characterizes Saul as God's enemy, stiff-necked and resisting the Holy Spirit like all the other opponents of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Paul, Saul, has murderous intentions against the Lord's disciples. And he is, like Herod and Pontius Pilate, set against the Lord and his anointed. He, Saul, experienced a blinding, a blinding like that of Elimus, who later is described in the book of Acts as an enemy of everything that is right, who perverts the ways of the Lord. What this person is saying is that Luke presents Saul as sort of the epitome of opposition to Christ in the world. Not like the Ethiopian official, nor like Cornelius, the quintessential Gentile. Saul indeed was overtly hostile to Christians and to Christianity. Right there in verse 1, we can see it. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And these threats were no idle threat, but these were real threats with the real possibility of him making good on them. In fact, he had official papers in hand to go and make good on these threats he was breathing. He was traveling to Damascus with the intent to bind and bring to Jerusalem, we're told in verse 2. And this is presumably to imprison or maybe even to kill, to execute any man or woman that he might find belonging to the way, as Saul puts it in verse 2. As some years later, Saul, Paul even confesses in his own words, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, uh, thinking about himself during these days before he was a Christian, he says, I was a blasphemer, one who speaks uh, against God. He says, I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. And there's where I'm grabbing this, this phrase from here. This insolent opponent speaks to the violent and arrogant opposition that Saul had against Christ and against Christianity. Uh, to be an insolent opponent is to be one who's convinced he's right and you can't convince him otherwise. And he is violently in opposition to Christ and his people in the world. In fact, Saul's opposition to Christ had been so aggressive that no one could believe that he had been converted. And this passage is, is thick with this sort of idea. So Ananias says to Jesus, when Jesus says to Ananias, hey, I want you to go and visit with Saul and I want you to be a help to him. Ananias says, hey, wait a second, I know about this guy. Uh, there, there are rumors. Uh, there's word been said about his reputation has, has preceded him. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, he says in verse 13, and he didn't want to go near him. But the same is true about the Jews who were in the synagogues throughout Damascus. When Saul is proclaiming the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, they are all, we're told in verses 20 and 21, amazed to hear Saul proclaiming Jesus. Uh, they, they were saying, hey, wait a second. This is the same Saul that was persecuting these people that he's for now. 
He was persecuting them in Jerusalem. He came here to do the same thing. And so why is he, why is he now seeming to be one who's on their side? And really the, the rich irony that we see is in verse 26, where even the disciples back in Jerusalem, uh, they didn't believe that Saul could be a disciple himself. So here comes Saul back into Jerusalem, having already persecuted the church in Jerusalem. And he's now saying, hey, I'm a convert too. And they're saying, wait a second, we need some evidence. This doesn't sound quite right. Now, this is the way Paul, Saul, Paul, forgive the, the interchangeable use of that term. If I say Paul and mean Saul, uh, just bear with me. You'll know I'm talking about the same guy here. But the, the, the way that Saul is presented in this passage is something that, that if, if we're reading it through and we don't know what's going to happen, well, the expectation is, is that when Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Saul is the chief opposer of the sovereign Lord of the universe. What's Jesus going to do to this guy when he meets him on the road to Damascus? He's going to destroy him. He's going to crush him where he stands. But Jesus builds his church not by destroying all those who oppose him, but by converting some of the very sinners who stand against him so violently. And this is what we see in point number two, the remainder of the passage. A gracious sovereign. The first thing I want to point out here in point number two, a gracious sovereign, is that Jesus is presented as the heavenly sovereign here. So Jesus' power is not minimized by his uh, demonstration of grace to Saul in this passage. In fact, the way that Jesus is presented in this passage is not less than powerful, but supremely powerful. Look at it with me in verses three and four. When Saul was making his way to Damascus, to arrest and imprison and probably kill more Christians, he saw what we're told was a light from heaven and he heard a voice. Now this is using biblical language to, to say to the reader, if you're a reader of the Bible, you hear this light from heaven, this voice from heaven. This is a, what, what uh, Christians call in uh, theological terms, a theophany, uh, an appearance of God, the manifestation of God's glory in real time. To be specific, this is what theologians would call a Christophany, because this is specifically the Son of God who is being presented in the passage. He is appearing. And this is the way the Bible speaks about God appearing to humanity all throughout the scriptures, when he rarely does that. So, for example, Moses spoke of God's presence at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as a great fire and a voice the people of Israel heard from the heavens, a light and a fire. I'm sorry, a light and a voice. Throughout much of Israel's existence, God's presence was visible on and in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting in the form of a brilliant light or a fire. When Jesus was transfigured in front of his disciples, revealing just a taste of his divine glory during his earthly ministry, both Mark and Matthew, they described this experience as a bright light and a voice from the heavens. And so this is the way the Bible speaks of the manifestation of God's presence in the midst of humanity. So when Saul sees this brilliant light and hears this voice, we are to understand that the Bible is telling us this is God manifest. And Jesus is the one who is speaking, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So Saul saw the glory and heard the voice of the Son of God, no one less before him on that day. And when Jesus said to Saul, I am Jesus in verse five, whom you are persecuting. 
Well, there is no doubt that Saul must have felt the very same terror and dread that many of those who heard Peter's message on the day of Pentecost felt themselves. Remember on the day of Pentecost, whenever Peter preached the sermon that he did, he sort of the climax of his of his uh, sermon was was found in verse 36 of Acts chapter two. So Peter kind of goes through a few evidences to say that this Jesus is the one that God has has been sending all along and he's finally here. And then the climax of his sermon to all those who are listening and watching is Acts chapter two, verse 36, when Peter says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord is the one who is the sovereign. Christ is that messianic figure that's been promised all along. This Jesus whom you crucified. He's laying blame on those in the audience there saying you're the ones who crucified this one that God has made supreme. And there Paul is hearing the same kind of words. I am Jesus, the supreme Lord and sovereign, and you are persecuting me. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't. Thanks, Siri. I don't need your help now. Uh, Jesus doesn't destroy Saul where he stands, but rather Jesus showed incredible grace. Now, this whole encounter demonstrates Jesus's incredible grace. Jesus showed grace by not destroying him on the spot. Jesus showed grace by revealing himself to Saul so that Saul would know who Jesus truly was and is. The revelation that Jesus is giving to Saul, telling him who he actually is, is a gracious thing indeed. Jesus shows incredible grace by appointing Saul, who is an insolent opponent, as his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. So this whole encounter is incredibly gracious on the part of Jesus. But I like the way that R.C. Sproul points out a very uh, a gentleness with which Jesus confronts Saul in this passage with the repetition of his name. And so Sproul, uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, he said, when Saul is addressed by the heavenly voice, he's addressed in the term, uh, terms of the repetition of his name, Saul, Saul. And Sproul goes on to say, search the scriptures and see how many times the Bible uh, in the Bible, anyone is addressed for any reason by the repetition of their name. He said, you will discover that it occurs less than 20 times in the whole scope of redemptive history. And if you would examine each of these occurrences that are recorded for us, you would see something emerge very clearly. He said, when Moses was called in the Midianite wilderness, God called out from the burning bush, Moses, Moses. When Abraham was at Mount Moriah and was just about to sacrifice his son on the altar, the voice of God came to him saying, Abraham, Abraham. When Elisha stood on the earth and watched the ascent of Elijah, he said, my father, my father. When David mourned the loss of his son, he cried, Absalom, Absalom. Sproul says over and over again, we see this. And it's always an expression in the Hebrew tongue of profound personal intimacy. So when Jesus, the sovereign Lord, confronts Saul the spearhead of persecution against himself in the world, he confronts him with gentleness and with intimacy. Friends, I wonder if you know the incredible grace of Christ. 
Are you a sinner who has felt that same sort of confrontation by the God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ? Have you been one who has recognized your own guilt and your own shame before God and felt the reality that God himself doesn't judge us where we stand, but approaches us on the terms of intimacy and calls us to himself? Think about the way the Apostle Paul put it later in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. He, speaking to Christians, says, And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, those deserving wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, who is rich, In mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The love and grace of God is demonstrated not in responding to us, but rather initiating with us a loving and gracious and intimately merciful relationship. This is the way God approaches Saul when he is still breathing out violence and threats against Christ himself in the world, Jesus meets him with incredible grace. But Jesus also spoke the direct truth to him. Jesus did not pretend that this was all just a big mistake or misunderstanding. Jesus said in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was clearly and arrogantly and violently hostile to the claims of Christians. And therefore, he was hostile to the claims of Jesus Christ himself. To persecute the people of Christ is a direct assault upon Jesus himself. Much more could be said on that, but we just don't have time today. Right now, what I want to do, though, is recognize the compatibility of both truth and grace. Jesus shows both in this passage. He tells Saul the truth about who Saul is. Saul, you are in a bad way right now. You are standing in opposition to the sovereign of the universe. And that's not good. And he does so with such gracious grace. So friends, I wonder if you speak to your friends, your loved ones with truth and grace. Do you tell the people that you love about the grace that is bigger and better than they could possibly imagine in the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you also tell them about the judgment that Christ will distribute on all those who stand in opposition against him? Do we tell our friends and our loved ones that those who trust in, those who depend upon, those who cling to the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, will be rescued from their sins, rescued from the penalty they deserve, will be spared from God's righteous indignation on that last day? And do we also tell them the truth? That to resist or neglect or turn our noses up to this incredible offer of grace is to put ourselves in direct opposition to that same God who will also deliver justice. Do we speak in terms of both truth and grace. 
May God help us to do that. But the grace of God in Christ converts this insolent opponent in our passage today and simultaneously commissioned him as the Christian missionary extraordinaire. Point number three, conversion with a commission. I told you that Jesus Christ building his church was going to be a common and repeated theme. And indeed, uh, this whole episode presents Jesus as the intentional and active party. Jesus sovereignly confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, just as he sovereignly uh, told Ananias to go and to let Saul uh, be free from his blindness and uh, be commissioned uh, by the, the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's initiating all of this, both Saul and Ananias. He's the one who is at work in this entire scene. But note quickly the imagery and the elements of conversion that we see here. Saul was confronted by Christ and he was still opposed to Jesus as he's headed toward Damascus. And Jesus's judgment upon Saul in that very first encounter is in verse eight, that he was stricken with blindness, symbolically demonstrating who Saul is at that moment. Saul is one who can see just fine, but he's one who's blind to the reality of the truth of the gospel. And therefore, he becomes blind physically. While Saul waited in Damascus in verse 9, we're told that he neither ate nor drank. This implies uh, possibly repentance on Saul's part. He recognizes his guilt before the Lord, and so he is, he is pushing away food and drink in order to demonstrate his sorrow, the feeling of guilt. It also in the Bible, the the resistance of food and and drink uh, can be the sort of anticipation of greater revelation that is to come. It seems like both could be the case in, in, in what Saul is experiencing here. He is both sorrowful and repentant. He's encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes he's been wrong all along that Saul has. And he also knows that there is something that he's yet to do, that Jesus has sent him into Damascus and told him to wait there. He'll be told. And so he's expecting further revelation. Both could be the case here. We also see this unfolding of the elements of conversion uh, in verses 17 and 18. When Ananias comes, he lays his hands on Saul and Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. He regains his sight. He can he can see now. But recall, just as the inability to see was a demonstration of what was spiritually true about Saul. Well, now he's able to see. Now he's one who is converted. He has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. And so he's able to see now when In fact, he could not before. And then also in verse 18, he rose and was baptized, taking on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, being baptized as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Uh, So Saul, in some ways, is demonstrative of what conversion looks like in the life of of any uh, sinner who becomes a Christian. But Saul's conversion is also something that is unique in the sense that it comes along with a particular commission. So see there in verse 15 that Jesus said to Saul that he was to be a chosen instrument of Christ, of of mine, to carry my name, Christ's name, before the Gentiles and kings and children of the earth. Now there's a real sense in which all Christians are commissioned to carry or bear the name of Christ in the sight of the watching world. As I've already said, Christians take on the name of Christ in our baptism. When we're baptized, we're baptized in association with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The triune God who has sent Jesus as the one who is the mediator between God and man. 
And so then baptism is a way by which, is the way by which Christians take on the name of Christ and begin to be called Christians, living as Christians in the world. And taking on the task of bearing the name of Christ in evangelism. So think about the way the Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. He says, through Christ, God reconciled the world to himself and gave us, those who are reconciled, the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So there's a real sense in which Christians take on the name of Christ in their baptism, becoming Christians and living for Christ in this world, and also are ambassadors for Christ, bearing the name of Christ as evangelists in the world. But Saul was especially commissioned in this way, a chosen instrument to carry the name of Christ past the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. In fact, that's the whole point of our passage here, that Jesus is continuing to spread the gospel, the same gospel that he has that he has uh, put on display in his own person and work, that he's commissioned his disciples to be witnesses of throughout uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now the Apostle Paul, who's now Saul in our passage, is the one by which the extension of the gospel is going to be made past these initial boundaries of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It's Christ himself who is the ultimate missionary, but we see this character, a passage, a first Peter, then Philip, and now on to Saul as the one who is going to be the carrier of the story, the missionary, the, the human mouthpiece and evangelist to the watching world. Jesus, though, we want to recognize he extends his kingdom. He expands his kingdom in the world, not by the sword of opposition, not by conquering the peoples who stand against him, but rather by the spread of the gospel and the conversion of even impossible sinners, of which Saul is the preeminent one, through the proclamation of the gospel and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There's one other feature, though, of Saul's commission, besides that he would carry Christ's name. And Jesus has also told us in verse 16, uh, told Saul that he would suffer much for the sake of Christ's name. And Saul's evangelistic strength in Damascus was soon opposed, just as was the case with the Christians there in Jerusalem, which Saul himself had opposed. So let's see point number four, this suffering but welcomed, this reality that Paul suffers. Now, I've already alluded to the irony that we see here in the passage of Acts chapter 9, that Saul was the greatest opponent of Christianity in verse 1. But by the time we get to the end of the passage, that he was such a strong advocate for Christianity that he confounded all who heard him by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I've already also alluded to the fact that Paul, Saul, was blinded, even though he could see He was blinded by his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that he himself was spiritually blind. But then when he is converted and becomes a follower of Christ, his eyes are then open and he is able to see again. Uh, We see that uh, though Paul or Saul had been the tip of the spear with regard to persecution against Christians, that he had become the target of persecution uh, aimed at Christians and that he had to be helped even to escape persecutions by the very Christians that he'd come to Damascus to imprison and even to kill. 
Uh, All of this is irony, and there's much more that we could consider in the passage, but there's just one other bit of irony that I want to point out, which we are able to see in Paul's welcoming into the uh, brotherhood of Christians there in Jerusalem. If you see the end of our passage, you see that Paul, he finally came back to Jerusalem. And when he was there, he attempted to join the disciples. He, He attempted to join the church there in Jerusalem. But everybody was afraid of him. And so no one wanted to come near him. So we're, we see this for the second time in the book of Acts, this person named Barnabas who shows up in the storyline. You might recall that Barnabas was one of those singled out in Acts chapter 4 as one of those Christians who had sold their property in order to give the proceeds away to any fellow Christian in need. Barnabas was given, his given name was Joseph, but he was called Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement and such an encouragement to the apostles and even to others. Now, interestingly, Barnabas became quite a friend of Saul and their relationship continues on uh, throughout the book of Acts after this passage here. But Barnabas is the one who kind of takes Saul by the hand and walks him into the apostles. Uh, Barnabas seems to think that if the apostles will accept Paul, Saul, as one of the brothers, one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, then everyone else will accept him also. But it's Barnabas's word. It's Barnabas's testimony. It's his It's his affirmation of Saul that makes Saul able to be welcomed into the brotherhood, into the church there in Jerusalem. But as I said, there's this this other feature of Saul's calling or commissioning as a missionary for the Lord Jesus Christ, one who carries the name of Christ. And that is the aspect of his suffering. And it begins almost right away. Now, Luke tells us that there were some many days that had passed in Acts chapter 9, verse 20 from the time that Saul began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues and proving that Jesus was the Christ. But soon enough, after Paul, Saul was doing that, Jesus' commission, I will show you, Saul, how much you will suffer for my name's sake, it became a reality in Saul's life. Saul did indeed suffer much throughout his service to Jesus. It happened right away. They were plotting to kill him and he had to escape by a secret exit. But that's not all. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul kind of recites many of the sufferings that he experienced throughout his life. Paul himself said he suffered imprisonments and countless beatings and that he was often near death. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. If you got 40 lashes, essentially that equaled death. So 40 lashes less one was just shy of it. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and even danger from false brothers, false Christians. Saul's service to Christ was, he says, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. Friends, this would be a good time to ask you, do you have a category for Christ commissioning you as a Christian to be his faithful witness in the world and to suffer for it? Do you have a a category for suffering for Christ? Suffering 
for doing what is right. Suffering for speaking the truth. Suffering for sharing the gospel. Suffering for giving your time and treasure away for the sake of evangelism. Suffering worldly loss so that others might gain eternity. Do you have a category wherein Christians suffer by God's design and for doing exactly as they're supposed to do in the world? So much of Christianity, well, the Christianity that's passed off often in the United States of America and the Western world, and that's exported beyond our borders, flies in the very face of who Saul Paul was and is. There is no such thing as a category for suffering for the sake of Christ. If there is, it's merely temporary and it's on your way towards some greater victory that is yet to come. But this is not what is presented to us in the passage this morning. Rather, what's presented to us in the passage this morning is that Jesus Christ builds his church and his people in the world, not without opposition or without suffering or without difficulty, but despite all of that, in the face of all of that. And this is the steady drumbeat of the storyline of the book of Acts. This gets us to point number five, the last one for today. Despite opposition, Christ builds his church. We're told about further opposition against Saul and yet another escape in verses 29 and 30. And then our passage ends in verse 31 with these words. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This sort of phrase here that the the church in all of this land and all of this geographical location was being built up, was was multiplying. Uh, This is sort of a a section ender for Luke as he unfolds the storyline of Acts. We saw this kind of a phrase end when the ministry that was being focused upon in Jerusalem came to a close. Not that ministry there came to a close, but Luke's focus on it came to a close there in Jerusalem. That the gospel had gone out to Jerusalem. That the church was flourishing. And then the church scattered about in all uh, Judea and Samaria. And that's what we've been reading about up to now. And now it's about to extend past the borders of Judea and Samaria. And so Luke is telling us that all throughout the area of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, that the church was flourishing. There are two things I want to point out, though, uh, from this sort of uh, repeated phrase. The first thing is, is that Christ, by his spirit, is the builder, the edifier of his church. Once again, in verse 31, the church had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. And who was doing that? Well, the implication there is that God himself is doing that. That Christ, the Son of God and God the Son, he's the one who is at work building his church up. And this is exactly what Jesus promised he would do. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, there's a very interesting encounter where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the good confession, saying that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces a blessing upon him. 
And Jesus said that God himself had revealed this marvelous truth to Peter. And then Jesus made that wonderful promise in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, Christ promised that his kingdom, his church, his people would expand in the world by his doing. This is a great promise for anyone who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who's a part of a local church. Not that every local church will always be. Local churches do indeed die all the time. God has not promised that any local church will always exist. But it's a great promise that the Christ we follow is bigger than any one particular local church, is bigger than any one geographical location, and that following Jesus means that in the end we win. That Jesus is the sovereign who builds his church. He builds his kingdom. He is the king and he builds it up. This is a great promise, but this is not an excuse for us to be passive citizens of Christ's kingdom. Because the second thing I want to point out here is that Christ normally works through everyday people in his church building project. He normally works through everyday folks, just like me and you, in his church building project. Think about it with me for just a minute. What town is it that Saul was headed toward? It was Damascus. Can we think of any place in the Bible where there's a, an evangelistic campaign that's recorded going to Damascus? Where there were some apostles that were sent there in order to bring the good news of Christ to Damascus? I can't find one. And yet, in Damascus, we're told in verse 2 that there were already many belonging to the way there. In verse 9, we're told there were many, I'm sorry, in verses 10 and 19, there were many disciples. And in verse 14, we're told that there were those who call on Christ's name. These folks were already in Damascus, despite the fact that there was no coordinated evangelistic effort recorded in Damascus. And did you know that Damascus is 135 miles north of Jerusalem? It's the outskirts, even past maybe, where Samaria ends. Who was it? that brought the gospel to Damascus and to countless other little villages and towns along the way. Every day, unnamed Christians scattered about, very likely by persecution there in Jerusalem. And here they go, living as Christ's witnesses in the world and the very people through which Jesus is building his kingdom. And this is the instruction of the New Testament That's not only the example that we see in our passage this morning, that Christ is building, expanding his kingdom by everyday people, but it's the instruction we see in the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us that the very reason Christ instituted the local church was for the building up of the whole body, which is joined and held together by love so that all may mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 4. So the Bible teaches us, uh, based on that reality in Ephesians chapter 4, that the whole church, that each local church is established by the Lord Jesus Christ for the maturing of all members so that we all may grow up into the fullness of Christ. The New Testament repeatedly then says stuff like this in 1 Thessalonians 5. Therefore, 
encourage one another and build one another up. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, let all things be done for building up. So we should take great courage in the promise, in the fact that Jesus is the one who builds his church despite all opposition, despite any suffering, despite all hardships that we might face. And we should also hear in this uh, a provoking, a beckoning, a, a motivation for us to participate in this church expanding, kingdom expanding project. Jesus welcomes us. And how is it that we participate in that? Well, first and foremost, by being those who join together with others who are called by the name of Christ for the building up of one another. And then by living out as consistently as we may, striving towards lives of holiness as ambassadors for Christ, telling the watching world who it is we follow and why, and promising to them the same promises that we've been given. That those who believe in, those who trust in, those who love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ are those who can join with him and enjoy God's blessings and not his wrath. So my prayer this morning is that God would help us to rest and to celebrate and to be invigorated, invigorated by the fact that Christ is building his church despite all opposition. That we would take great comfort in this. That we would remember that Christ does this by converting impossible sinners. So whether we think we're far away from Christ this morning or we think we're nearby, we want to recognize that Christ welcomes sinners into his kingdom. Not because we are good, but because he's been good on our behalf. And we want to remember that Christ is the one who builds his church by using everyday Christians like us to be his witnesses. Until that day when Christ's universal kingdom, his universal church shall become visible. And all opposition and all suffering and all hardship will stop. May Christ come and bring you that day. Would you bow with me and let's pray again? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.